Uh, well, my name is Josh, in case we haven't met. I think I've met everybody here today, so it's so great to be with you. I have the privilege of serving here as a co-lead pastor with Kylie, my wife, who you met or talked to just a few moments ago. And I'm excited this morning just to share the word. This um, passage that we'll be looking at this morning has uh, really kind of spoken to me all week long, and so I'm praying this morning that as uh, we look into it together that it will also speak into your life uh, this morning. Uh, but I want to begin with an interesting thought or question for all of us this morning. Um, but I find, and we can even look at this uh, morning service as an example, uh, but isn't it interesting how lighting impacts us or affects us? Earlier we had the lights dim and, and also sound, but um, lighting, <laughs> lighting uh, affects us. We had the lights dimmed, we had these uh, nice little bulbs lit, and it kind of creates an ambiance or a feeling. Uh, it kind of quiets or calms people. Um, and I actually did a little study on this, and, it sh and there's research that shows, and I think I've got a slide for something about this, it shows that the amount and the type of lighting directly impacts or directly affects various areas of our lives, including our concentration, our appetite, our mood, and various other aspects of our daily lives. So you think about it there, and, and you can kind of see those little, let me get out of the way, there's these, those emojis. I worked really hard to find those for you. Um, but um, it's really interesting to, to discover that. And there's actually, maybe you're familiar with this um, disorder. There's a, a disorder called seasonal affective disorder. Has anybody ever heard of that before? If you lived in California your whole life, like most, most, most of my life I have, you probably never heard of it before, but it's a disorder uh, that brings on a type of depression that comes with the season. So typically in the fall and moving into winter, as things get gloomy and dark and things start to, to essentially go through the cycle of dying, it actually brings on depression and discouragement for people. It's an actual syndrome. And so the outside lighting, like uh, people that, I've heard of people that live in the Pacific Northwest, like in the Portland Seattle. Seattle area where it's just gloomy and rainy all the time and that people have to move because they get so depressed in that type of environment and it's really interesting to see how much light impacts or affects us as human beings uh, and there's often a lot of emotion that's associated with lighting as well and one that is um, often associated more so on the spectrum of darkness is this idea of fear uh, and I'll think about this just for a second but if you have an unusual noise in your house in the middle of the day, let's say at 3 p.m., you're hanging out, watching a little Netflix on a Saturday or whatever, and you hear a weird noise, you kind of go, huh, that was strange, and then you kind of go back to watching what you're watching. But now imagine yourself at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, and it's dark everywhere, and you hear that same noise. It really kind of, even though you may not be self-admitting scaredy cats, there are, there's always a little something in us that creates a little extra anxiety. And the only difference in that circumstance is that it's now dark. And so there's this connection or there's correlation somehow with lightness and darkness and this idea of fear. Um, darkness can certainly be uncomfortable, it can be confusing, and it can certainly be terrifying for some. Like every scary movie always takes place in the dark, right? I mean, seriously, nothing ever really happens in the middle of the day. Uh, but darkness or the dark can also be described, or can also be used to describe a season of life in which one finds oneself lost, lonely, or misfortunate. Um, darkness is also perhaps the best description that we can 
used this morning for the situation the people of Israel find themselves in the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning. And so if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, I want you to go with me to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at chapter 9, and we're going to start right at the beginning of chapter 9. And we're going to read the first four verses of Isaiah 9. And I have, uh, if you don't have your Bible or Bible app with you this morning, I have the scriptures up on the screen. And I'm going to be reading this morning from uh, maybe a version you may or may not be familiar with, but it's called the New Revised Standard Version. And I'm just going to read it, and you can kind of follow along with me. Uh, Verse 1 begins, But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Uh, And as we just dig into it this morning, I pray that you would speak to all of us in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to set a little bit of a background for what's going on here in this particular passage. And if you actually have a physical Bible, or perhaps if you have a preview on your, on your uh, phone or tablet, whatever you're looking at this morning, as you can see that a couple verses later, uh, we really um, embark in onto one of the most famous Christmas passages of the Old Testament, where it talks about the promise of Jesus the Messiah. And these verses that we are reading here really are laying the groundwork for that, but it's also setting the context for the significance or the impact that Jesus or the Messiah is going to make, not only amongst the Jewish people who at this season of their history are looking for this Messiah, but also for the whole rest of the world, the Gentiles, those that are not the Jewish people, that have not heard of this promised rescuer, Jesus or the Messiah. And so they may not be looking for him, but he is going to have an impact that is far beyond just those that might be looking for him. Uh, But historically now, as Isaiah the prophet is declaring these words, he's speaking to a people that have been uh, for quite a while and will continue to be for many more years to come under the oppressive influence of a foreign power. Um, our, Our text begins by describing the land of Israel and more specifically these two regions called Zebulun and Naphtali and we'll look into that in just a second about where they are and and why they're mentioned in particular in this passage but um, it talks about that this particular land and its people are going through essentially a scary or dark time. Um, In the former time it says he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And there, a little later, Isaiah describes the people as walking in darkness. So where are these lands, and and essentially what and why are they in this season of darkness? So um, you may or may not be familiar with this story, but the people of Israel were formed through this guy named Jacob. And Jacob um, had this really unique relationship with God. And through the course of his relationship with God, God renamed him and gave him a new name and called him Israel. And so that's where the people of Israel uh, find their like origins in this particular person. And he had uh, 12 sons 
And of these 12 sons, they essentially became 12 tribal leaders of the people of Israel. And so you may have heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those 12. And so as the people of Israel begin to come back, so they're in captivity in Egypt, Moses liberates them. They walk across the dry land of the Red Sea, and they wander the desert for 40 years. And eventually, after wandering the desert for 40 years, Joshua, the successor of Moses, helps the people enter into this promised land. And so when they enter into this promised land, they eventually drive out all the surrounding peoples mostly. They leave some, some, some of the tribes are a little disobedient and don't wipe out everybody. And that's a whole other argument. We can talk about that. That's a fun one to talk about, by the way. But they kind of are assigned different regions of the land and where to live. So each tribe was basically kind of given its own little spot. And Zebulun and Naphtali were given um, um, areas that were at the far north of the land of Canaan. And they essentially were put in two of the most vulnerable spots that they could be in. Um, To the west, the people of Israel pretty much had the ocean and some protection there. And to the east, there was a lot of desert, so there was a lot of protection there. So most of the invading armies that would come to try and overtake the people of Israel were coming down from the north. And so Naphtali and Zebulun are in the north, and they're in this vulnerable geographic position. But they are not only just vulnerable because of geographic position, they are also vulnerable because of their disobedience. So these 12 tribes kind of coexist for a long, long season. I love this part of Jewish history. To me, this is like so fascinating. So they, they kind of coexist as like 12 regional or almost city-states that kind of cooperate together for a long time. Sometimes they go to war with each other because there are disputes among them. Kind of like you ever been in a home for Thanksgiving and it isn't always smooth and there's a little bit of drama sometimes. So that's what it's like. These little tribes, even though they have the same history and the same roots and they believe they worship the same God, they all go to the temple in Jerusalem, but they kind of have this infighting that happens throughout their history. But eventually what happens is they're, they're united under this guy named Saul as, a, as one kingdom. But Saul walks away from, from God, and so the kingdom is removed from him, and it's given to this guy David, right? And so David is known as kind of like this great leader and warrior of the people of Israel, and he truly not only unites the people militaristically, they expand, their wealth becomes pretty prominent, they're feared by their surrounding peoples, and then David dies, and eventually his son Solomon takes over. And Solomon, the Bible describes, is like a super wise king. He has great uh, wisdom that God has given him, but he makes a lot of dumb mistakes, and he compromises in a lot of different ways and eventually when he dies because of the way that he lived his life it laid a perfect groundwork for a division amongst the people of Israel so they had lived under two kings pretty much and pretty much three by the time Solomon's on the scene uh, united and, and, and forced together but now when Solomon dies his son and basically one of his main military generals go at it and it splits the country And so in the northern part of the country, they take the name Israel. And 10 of those 12 tribes are in that northern region. And that's where Naphtali and Zebulun are at the very, very north there. And so the northern kingdom is called Israel. And the southern kingdom takes the name of one of the the biggest tribes in the south because it was just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And they take the name of Judah. 
And Judah has the tribe, uh, uh, is like one of the biggest tribes, so it kind of takes over there, but they also have the capital, Jerusalem. So all the other Hebrew people in the north, even though they're split up into two different kingdoms, they'll come down to Jerusalem to do worship there because the temple, according to the law, is the only place that you can worship God. So there's still this mutual relationship, but they've divided now as two nations. But what's really unique, what takes place here in this, in this history, is that that northern kingdom, when they split off and start their own reign, kind of in the area of Samaria and Galilee of today and in Jesus' day, they never as a people remain completely faithful to God. They are constantly, and actually, it, it, as you do a little bit of the research, these regions, in particular, Naphtali, when they took over their particular area, they didn't completely drive out. They defeated the other peoples that were in their land that God was giving them, but they didn't drive them out. And so what happens is that those people that had kind of stayed amongst them, as well as those in some of the surrounding areas, began to influence them, not so much politically, but more so religiously. And so the northern kingdom began to intermix their worship of the one true God with all the other surrounding gods as well. And if you remember anything about the Ten Commandments in Moses that God gave those commandments to, to his people, one of the big things he talked about was to worship God and God and uh, the one God and God alone. Um, there's the famous teaching that uh, I think if you were here a, a little over a month ago, my dad was here maybe about six weeks ago, and he, he talked about the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, the Jewish people call it the Shema, which is the first words in Hebrews of, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And there's this call that is ingrained amongst the Jewish people and amongst their culture to worship the one true God. And so the northern kingdom has known this, but they continue to walk away from it. And God will send prophets because God is a compassionate God and a loving God. He desires his people to be in union and relationship with him. He sends prophets to both the north and the south because the south isn't really much better. In their entire history, they have six good kings. So like the north has no good king at all in its entire history and no good spiritual leaders. And the south has some prophets that are great and about six good kings. But the rest of the kings and their leaders are all just doing the same thing. They're intermixing their worship of God with all these other gods. And so God has sent prophets to the north, and he keeps calling these people to repentance, and the north never truly repents. And so God, in these prophets, he says, look, if you repent, people of Israel, I will bless you, and I will give you all these things that I promise you. But if you don't, judgment is coming. And so the people kind of hear it. The prophets have no to limited success in the north. And so God, at this point, then decides to allow the punishment to come. And he does this in the form of other nations coming in and invading and eventually conquering the northern kingdom first, and then eventually even the southern kingdom falls to the hands of enemies. And at this time right now, the northern kingdom, in particular Zebulun and Naphtali, have been under the oppression of the Assyrians. And I don't know if you know anything about the Assyrians, but they were ruthless people. They are actually the inventors of the modern empire that would evolve eventually. Like they formed their first professional trained army 
to go in and have a standing army at all times to come in and invade nations. They also were very organized and had a strong administration. And so when they conquered people, they also had a strategy to keep them under their thumb. They would take people from, uh, like if they conquered you on this side, they would take people from this side and they'd put them over here in their, in their land. And they'd take people over here and they'd mix them all up so that there would be intermarriage and intermingling, less identification with their own people groups, more of an identification as being a part of the Assyrian kingdom to assimilate them into the mainstream so there would be less, less rebellion. In addition to that, they were absolutely ruthless people. Anytime there was any type of uprising or rebellion, they would come in and they would do just some of the most heinous things that you can think of. There's even belief that the Assyrians are actually the ones that invented the crucifixion, that the Romans perfected, but the Assyrians did that. But they were also known for essentially flaying or skinning people, sometimes even alive, and putting their bodies on display. They were ruthless people. They did this in order to show their force and their intimidation. And this is the oppressive government that Zebulun and Naphtali are under. At this time, the northern kingdom is truly no more. And Isaiah is now coming, speaking this strange word. But in reality, it's a word that provides hope to them in their situation. Can I read it now, like in, in light of all that? We just got our history lesson for the year, all right? But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And really, in this, what that, what that phrase is talking about is that essentially God used the oppressive surrounding peoples, in this case the Assyrians, to humble the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. That their current situation is truly at the result in the hand of God. So God used this, but it says, but in the latter time. So like in the former time, God used these, these other nations to humble you to teach you essentially a lesson that I am God and to bring punishment for your unrepentant hearts. But in this latter time, and now he's talking about this time of promise that is to come, in this latter time, he, meaning God, will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There's really this great illusion that this blessing that is to come to this particular land is truly the Messiah. Because this area, Zebulun and Naphtali, the area around the Galilee, is where Jesus primarily ministered his life. This area under oppression that at one time had been rebellion, and really this punishment is, is well-deserved. It's justified for being in rebellion against God. Yet because God is gracious and kind, even though he gave them the punishment they deserve, God is now offering them and the people of this land an opportunity to come and be the first participants in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He will walk in this land that has been oppressed and that has been dark. And this light that Isaiah is talking about, this light that he is uh, referring to is the light in the person of Jesus Christ. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, who lived in a land of deep darkness. On them, light has shined. And then verses 3 and 4 go into how the people, and really all people that have experienced the light and the person of Jesus Christ, respond when they understand what he has done from them, for them. In the midst of all this darkness and oppression comes this promise of hope. God was going to once again give the people light. What these people had done was to exchange their light of God for the darkness of the world. They essentially knew the way of God, but they had exchanged it for the, the ways of the surrounding nations. 
And so God had taken everything away from them and from these lands, all the honor and the joy and the pleasure, and left it in total humiliation and in total darkness. But the Lord took all this away because he had in mind to replace it and to replace it with something and someone greater, the Savior Jesus Christ. When we read the Gospels, this is the region, this is the area that was once dark where Christ came and spent a vast majority of his ministry. This land that had been war-torn later became known as the land of the Prince of Peace, right? So like if you go on and read, it talks about this promised child that will be the rescuer, the Prince of Peace, the mighty counselor. And of his kingdom, it says what? There will be no end. I want us to focus just a little bit of our attention right now to verse 4. Because as you can imagine, or maybe you can't, but um, these people probably lived with a lot of fear in their lives. Right? Being oppressed and controlled by another nation, even limiting the way in which they would worship their God. But verse 4 talks about what God is going to do for them, and I believe what his promise is telling us even today. It says, For the yoke of their burden... And the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God compares this freedom that's being ushered in through the Messiah. He, he, he compares it to the freedom or the victory of the day of Midian. And you may go like, well, that means nothing to me, man. What is the day of Midian? Um, one of my other favorite Bible stories is of this guy named Gideon. Not to be confused with Midian, but Gideon is this um, guy that is talked about in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. And Gideon is um, referred to in the scriptures as a judge, which could be more accurately probably translated as leader. Um, there were judges that kind of, I mean, that in the scriptures that kind of decided things for people and disputes, but most of them sat as military and political leaders for the nation of Israel. Um, and the cycle, it's so interesting, the cycle of the people of Israel, as you read their history, you can go all the way back to the, the judges and which preceded the kings and then through the times of the kings, where we find ourselves um, in our passage today with Isaiah, it's the same cycle throughout their history. They, they're faithful to God. They serve him for a while, but they kind of get distracted and they start worshiping all the other gods and doing all these other things. They get oppressed by a surrounding peoples and God will raise up somebody to help rescue them and bring them out. And then they brings them out and they get all excited and they worship God alone for a generation. But by the next generation, they fall right back into that cycle for year and years and years and years. And that happened under the judges, and it happened um, ultimately really in this cycle right now as they're sitting in an extended period of a time of oppression. Because God is really ultimately bringing that promised ultimate punishment that he had promised them for generations and generations and generations. And yet they failed to heed the call to repentance. But in this season um, of the Gideon, it's the same thing. The people had been oppressed by a nation because of their sin. It was a dark, dark time. The Midians at that time had been the most prominent military force in their area. And they had come in and basically pretty much conquered and controlled the people of Israel. And God raises up Gideon and calls him to overthrow the people of Midian. And what's really fascinating about this story is that Midian had a very large standing army. Um, and, and Gideon assembles as many of the people of Israel as he can that are military people, as many as the men as he can gather together. And he's got, I think about, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say it's like twenty or 30,000 men that are with him. And essentially with God's help and because at God's instruction, God tells him to whittle that army down to a smaller and smaller, smaller force, to essentially, uh, at the last 
cut, he has a 300-man standing army. And he's about to face the Midianites, and they believe it's about a 500 to 1 ratio. So for every one man that the people of Israel had, the Midianites had 500. Yet through the supernatural intervention of God and the strategic planning that God gives them, they overthrow the Midianites, and it becomes one of the greatest victories in the history of the people of Israel. And so as Isaiah mentions this, he compares this freedom, this liberty that this promised Messiah is going to usher in to this great day in victory. And what I love most about this story, which I think speaks to me the the most, is that God intentionally uses the smallest and least significant people to defeat the great armies. Gideon is described as the least in his family, who is the least from the least or the smallest or least significant tribe in the people of Israel. He has no prominence and no role, yet God calls upon Gideon to lead this force of 300 people, 300 men, against a force of thousands. And because of their obedience and their faith and trust in God, they defeat the greater army. And I, and I think about this story as it relates to our lives and as it relates to the promise of Christ that has come. 1 Corinthians maybe expresses it the best. It says in 1 Corinthians 27 and 29, it says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. You may think, well, well, God sent his son. Yes, God did send his son, and that's pretty significant in and of itself. But as Christ came to bring liberty, not just to these regions of Naphtali and Zebulun, but to really the entirety of all creation, he did not come in his divinity. Yes, he did not um, remove his divinity from himself, so he was still fully, completely God. Yet everything that Christ did on this earth, everything that he did, the supernatural miracles that he did, the prophecies that he gave, the teachings, the miracles, all those things, he did in his humanity empowered by the Spirit of God. He's, the scriptures tell us in Philippians that he sets aside his divine abilities. So he doesn't accent. They're still there, but he sets aside those divine abilities in order to live a life completely and solely uh, as a human being. And what I love about this is it gives me hope. It's like, here is Jesus, fully human and fully God. Yes, absolutely, 100%. The scriptures are very clear on that. But the reality is, is he sets aside his divinity. He sets aside his ability as God and operates solely in his ability as a man, yet lives a sinless life that God uses to change the world and impact lives on a daily basis. And what this means for you and me is that he does this all by the power of the Holy Spirit who is residing in the hearts and the lives of us the people of God. That everything that Jesus, this is why the scriptures say, everything that Jesus did, we could do and more. It's not because we're like, we're so great and profound, but it's because of who we trust in and what he has done. And that Jesus operated completely and solely in his humanity, but in obedience and in dependence upon the Father and the Spirit. 
And when we live lives like that, when we live lives in obedience to the Father, with a dependency upon the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do great things for this world, no matter how small and insignificant we may be. Because like, if you compare Dwell Church to some of the churches in the Los Angeles or Southern California area, we're not a large church, are we? We're not an army of 30,000 or 50,000 people. But we have the same Holy Spirit that abides in us, that abided in Christ. The same spirit that the scriptures declare raised Jesus from the dead. We sang that song, Resurrecting Me, right? The spirit is the one that brings the life and the resurrection. And as we walk in obedience to the word of God and we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to do all that God wants us to do and more. And it doesn't matter if we ever add another one person into this building, we can still accomplish all that God wants us to do and more. Because it is not in our own strength or our own abilities. It's not in our giftedness and our resources, but solely in the power of God himself who resides with us. I can't leave uh, and close this, this, this uh, message without just one other last challenge to you. But Paul and whoever's coming with you uh, this um, uh, at this time to come lead us in our closing response time. I, I have this last challenge for you because this is an encouraging message for us as a people, but it's also an encouraging message for us as individuals. Though you may not be oppressed by some other person or other nation, you may not be held captive, uh, there are things that can at times hold us down. Bad habits, sin, other bondages in our lives, and it doesn't really matter what it is, but there are things, sometimes it's just our temper, right? That, that we, we really know that we're not supposed to give in to the, the urges of our temper. And I'm using a personal example. That's why it's a really easy one for you. Um, uh, but um, it's so we know that we're not supposed to say those things or respond in certain ways. But we let our anger and our feelings and our emotions take control of us. And look, emotions are from the Lord. And they reveal a truth and a reality. But just like anything else in our lives, they should not dictate or control us. Only the Holy Spirit should dictate and control our lives. And, right, and that's a willingness of our hearts to submit to the leading and the prompting of the Spirit. And so I've got to say, all right, I've got all these emotions raging. and I've got all these thoughts going on. How am I supposed to respond? What is the Holy Spirit asking of me? And if I haven't read in God's word of how I'm supposed to respond in this circumstance, I need to lean even harder into the Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, help me here. I don't even know what to do or I'm about to say or do something that I'm might regret five minutes from now. And so I just offer this last challenge or question to you this morning is that I don't know what may or may not be holding you captive or oppressing you, but this victory, this freedom that Christ has come to bring and liberate in this entire world is for you and for all of you, right? Jesus does not just save your soul. He saves your entire being, Right? We, 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 we sometimes do a disservice to the work of the cross because we say, oh, my soul is, my, I've, Jesus has saved my soul. No, Jesus has saved your entire being, your whole, he's interested in the whole person in redeeming and restoring and sanctifying and renewing your whole person. Body, soul, mind, spirit, you name any other part that you can think of, cram it all in there. Jesus has come to bring liberty to the captive, to break the rod of the oppressor in our lives this morning. And so as Paul and the team lead us in this closing worship response, I just want to invite those of you that may want prayer this morning. You can share. You cannot share what you need prayer for, but I'm going to be hanging out over here on the side, and Paul and the team are going to lead us in this song. I'd be honored to pray with you and believe for the Lord to do something great in your life today. Amen.
we know from uh, reading the scriptures that when Jesus walked the earth, he, uh, his ministry was marked by miracles and signs and wonders. And he says something really fascinating to his disciples in John chapter 14. And he's preparing them for his crucifixion and his resurrection, his departure from them after he's spent three years with them. He's telling them lots of things, but in the middle of John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now most of us, no matter how long we have been in church, haven't seen a consistent ministry marked by miracles and signs and wonders and healings and the supernatural. I have seen lots of these things. And maybe you have too, but one thing that we really sense that God is saying to us right now to Dwell Church as we move forward together in this new season is that if we commit ourselves, see, this is the thing about Jesus, is that his ministry was marked by all of these supernatural signs and miracles and wonders, but his life was undergirded by prayer. He committed himself to abiding in the Father, to praying to the Father continually every day. So what something that we believe that God is saying to us right now is that if we commit ourselves to dedicated prayer, that we will see God do all of these things and more. That we will see healings and we will see miracles. But not just for the sake of healing and miracles. He says here, so that God may be glorified. And so I really and truly believe that in this season, that number one, God is asking us to be committed to seeking him and seeking him fervently and consistently. And I believe that if we commit ourselves to that, that we're not just going to see transformation in our own lives, but we're going to see transformation in the community around us as well. That we're going to see amazing things happen. And as Josh said, it might not, um, it might not translate to one more person in Dwell Church, and if it doesn't, that's okay. What we want to see is transformation in the community, we want to see God's salvation, God's kingdom come. And so our, our focus as we move into this next season is going to be just committed, dedicated seeking of the one who can empower us to do these things for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray together. And um, then I have one last announcement. And... Um, and we'll go. Father, we um, thank you so much for your presence, Lord. 
God, we are so desperately in need of you. Father, at the instant that we feel like or that we think that we are okay or that we have, that we can make it without your presence or without your salvation, God, would you humble us and would you remind us of our desperate need for you, Lord? We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you pour out on our lives. And Father, would you help us? Would you cause that to compel us? Lord, to abide with you continually. Would you stir in us a desire to hear your voice, to walk in your Holy Spirit, and God, to be vessels, to be witnesses to the things that you have done and will continue to do. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray and we ask as you instructed us to do.